0: Well, I invite you to open with me in your copy of God's word to Numbers, to Numbers chapter one. Now, as you're probably aware of, the Sahara Desert in Africa is the largest sand desert in the world. The Sahara Desert covers a span of approximately 3,000 miles from east to west, approximately the same distance from coast to coast in the United States. And the desert is 1,200 miles from north to south, covering a total of 3.3 million miles. The physical features of this great desert consist of shallow, seasonally inundated basins, large Oasis depressions, extensive gravel-covered plains, rock-strewn plateaus, and abrupt mountains throughout. And that most notable feature that you are most likely familiar with, which is the sand dunes and sand seas, which covers approximately 25% of the Sahara Desert. While the Sahara Desert poses many topographical and geographical features which present formidable travel obstacles for explorers and merchants alike. The Sahara Desert has become really an obstacle to travail for these explorers. One such explorer was a young, noble British administrator in the British colonial service by the name of Hans Vischer. In the year 1906, Vischer undertook the dangerous and rigorous travel some 1,500 miles from Tripoli all the way to Bornu, a trip that lasted a total of six months. Thanks, Now this journey throughout the Sahara Desert from north to south brought Vissar through many troubles and trials, including coming across native tribes that were hostile to him and his caravan in extreme heat and a scarcity of water supply. Visher ultimately recounts his journeys and his travels in a book that he titled Across the Sahara. Visscher recounts his journey in the following words. He says, I entered the journey frivolously like a fool. I left as one stunned, crushed by the deadly majesty I had seen too closely. Well, this evening we come to the book of Numbers, which details the nation of Israel's journeys in the desert with a few twists and turns along the way. In the book of Numbers, we have the privilege of studying this evening. It details the account of Israel's disobedience to their covenant God, Yahweh, and Yahweh's judgment upon this rebellious generation through the wilderness wanderings. I love how Mark Dever describes the wilderness wanderings of Israel in this way. He says the 40 years of wilderness wanderings was not a mammoth sized time out, but rather it was God's death sentence on a whole generation for unbelief and rebellion. While Hans Vischer took his journey upon his own volition in the year 1906. The nation of Israel languished in the desert for 40 years, not upon their own volition, but as a subsequent result of God's punishment for their disobedience and their lack of trust in his promises. While Vischer's journey lasted six months, in the Sahara Desert, and he described it as crushing. The nation of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness before entering Canaan. As we come to the book of Numbers, we must understand the following truth. The book of Numbers was written for our instruction and for our edification. And there are several crucial gems to be mined and precious pearls to be polished from this fourth installment of our study of the Pentateuch. You see, we must not relegate the book of numbers to the proverbial bottom shelf of our library or allow our understanding of numbers to collect dust. Now, as we consider this magnificent book, I want to provide you with several interpretation essentials that you need to understand to understand the book of numbers, but also in how it fits into the entire canon several interpretation essentials. So let's begin our evening of study with the first interpretation essential that you need to be aware of, and that is the author of Numbers. Now we have belabored this point that out of the first five books of the Bible that Moses, the prophet of God, is the author of the Pentateuch. But I do want to show you from the book of Numbers, from the pages of Numbers itself, this validation and this verification. In Numbers 33, two, we read these words. Moses Recorded their starting places according to their journeys by the command of the Lord. In chapter 33, at the command of the Lord, Moses recounts in written form the journeys of Israel from Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab. And it can't get clearer than what we see in the final chapter in Numbers 36, verse 13, where we read these words These are the commandments and the ordinances which the Lord commanded the sons of Israel through Moses in the plains of Moab. It is clear from this text that Moses was the human instrument that was used by God to pen this book. He recorded it in written form. So let's move on to the second interpretation essential that you need to be familiar with in your study of the book of Numbers. And that is the purpose of the book of Numbers. That answers the question, what role does this book play in and of itself? And what role does it play in the entirety of redemptive history? You see, the book of Numbers tells the story of the nation of Israel's travel from Mount Sinai to the plains of Moab. But Numbers isn't just a travelogue about the nation of Israel, but it provides the redeemed believer with essential theological truths that must be taken to heart. So as we consider the purpose of numbers, I would present the following purpose to you. The following purpose, this is why the book of numbers was written. When you come to it, this is why you find it in your Bible. And it's this, despite the rebellion and faithlessness of the sons of Israel against God, God's sovereign purpose would still be accomplished to bless Israel and to bring them to the promised land despite Israel's rebellion and faithlessness towards God, God would still be faithful to accomplish his sovereign purpose to bless the nation of Israel and to bring them into the promised land. Thomas Schreiner helpfully summarizes the purpose, writing this, numbers begins with a generation that should have entered the land of promise, but failed to do so because of disobedience and unbelief. The book concludes, however, through another census of a new generation, which is poised to inherit the land. As you study the book of Numbers, as you work your way from Numbers chapter one to Numbers chapter 36, you see this purpose fleshed out. You see it on full display. You see the nation of Israel consistently, habitually rebel against their God and maker. And yet God is still the faithful God who will accomplish his sovereign purposes through the nation of Israel. So that's the purpose of the book of Numbers. A third interpretation essential that you need to be aware of is the outline of Numbers. Now you might be asking and thinking in your mind, why is an outline of a book important? Why does that matter? Well, you see the answer is because the scriptures are what can be referred to as propositional revelation. What that means is that in the Bible, in the scriptures, you have words. And words are the building blocks of phrases and phrases are the building blocks of clauses and clauses, sentences and sentences, paragraphs and paragraphs, entire books. And so as we try to capture the overall flow of logic, as we try to capture the author's intention and purpose in writing a book, it is important that we come to at least a formalized outline and understanding of how he arranges his discourses. So this is not just a, a pointless endeavor in understanding the outline of the book. And so in the book of Numbers, you can outline it into two major divisions, two major divisions based upon the census list, which are contained in the book of Numbers. The first section runs from chapters one to 25, and it details the first generation of Israel at Sinai in the wilderness. In the first 10 chapters of Numbers, we find the nation of Israel still encamped at Mount Sinai where they've been for almost a year, since Exodus chapter 19. And then there's a decisive break in chapter 10 verse 11 where the nation of Israel sets out. They set up north from the Sinai Peninsula towards the promised land. These chapters, chapters one through 25 can be divided into two smaller sections. Those first 10 chapters where the nation of Israel is camped at Sinai, we could label that the obedience at Sinai. And then secondly, in chapters 11 through 25, the disobedience in the wilderness. Now the second major section begins with the census that is taken in in chapter 26, which details the second generation of Israel, particularly on the plains of Moab. You see, as we outline the book in this way, we see the generation that should have went to the promised land, should have inherited the promises of God, should have taken captive and destroyed the Canaanites. But because of their disobedience, we see their journeys and wanderings in the wilderness. But God raises up a second generation, a second generation which is poised to inherit the land and the promises that he had offered to the nation of Israel. So if Analyze the author of Numbers, We've looked at the purpose of numbers and also the outline of numbers. A fourth interpretation essential where I wanna spend a lot of our time is the major themes of numbers. And the reason that we spend our time in this section is because as you read through the book of numbers for yourself, you will see these come out over and over and over again. The repetitious nature of these themes brings them to highlight in your mind, Now there's four predominant themes that I want us to study this evening that I want to bring to your attention that are reiterated and that are re-emphasized throughout the pages of numbers. The first predominant theme that I want us to look at is the wilderness wanderings, the wilderness wanderings of Israel. You see, the preeminent focus of the book of numbers is upon Israel's travels in the wilderness. They're 40 years spent in the wilderness. The book of Numbers details how Israel traveled from Mount Sinai all the way to the plains of Moab on the verge of the promised land. The Hebrew word for wilderness is used 270 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. With the vast majority of these occurrences occurring in the book of Numbers, 48 total times. From the departure of some Sinai to the arrival at the plains of Moab, Numbers details the journey. And as you can see, I'm sorry about the size, but you can see in that concentric circle is where the vast majority of the content of the book of Numbers takes place. The first 10 chapters there are at the bottom of that Sinai Peninsula and they travel north to Kadesh Barnea. That is where the 12 spies went into the land and they scoped out the land, came back with the bad report. And instead of continuing on north into the promised land, we see the route redirected sovereignly by God's, judgment in hand. So you can see in that circle that the vast majority of the events in Numbers take place in that wilderness, in the various wildernesses in that area. The book of Numbers provides the rationale. It provides the reason why Israel did not immediately inherit the promised land following their sojourn at Sinai. A second theme that I want to bring to your attention is closely related to the first and it's really the cause of the first. And that is the disobedience of God's people. One of the prevailing themes throughout the book of Numbers is the remarkable failure of the people of God to trust in the Lord's promises and obey his divine commandments and prescriptions. As you read throughout the book of Numbers, in particular from chapters 10 through chapter 25, you develop thoughts like, can it get any worse than this? I mean, what other inventions of evil can the people of God come up with? Back in the day, I used to watch football. I don't have that prerogative much anymore. But on Monday night football, there would be a segment that would air titled, Come on, man. And as you read through the book of Numbers, you see that come to full fruition. Your thoughts are, what are you doing? Or if you like listening to reformed Q and A's like I do, you might be thinking of the words of R.C. Sproul. What's wrong with you people? But we must be careful, lest we remove ourselves too far from the sins and the struggles of the Israelites failing to acknowledge our own sinful proclivities and tendencies in our own life. Turn with me, if you would, to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, I wanna journey with the nation of Israel through these chapters just to to evidence and to show you this consistent habitual theme. In Numbers chapter 11, the, the nation of Israel has broken camp. They've left Mount Sinai and they are journeying north towards the promised land. And immediately in verse one, we read these words. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity and the hearing of the Lord. Let your eyes peruse down to verses four through six. We read the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish that we used to eat free in Egypt the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic, but now our appetite is gone. There is nothing to look at besides this manna. In the book of Numbers, the discontentment and the unthankfulness of the people of God reaches its greatest pinnacle and its greatest peak. Turn the page to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers chapter 12, we see in these verses that this disobedience is not just relegated, It's not just reserved for the common folk of Israel, but is even displayed amongst the leaders of Israel. We see in Numbers chapter 12, verses one and two, then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. You see Miriam and Aaron, Aaron grumble and complain against the provision of God's leadership of Moses, the one whom he appointed as his prophet, as the servant who would lead the people out of Egypt towards the promised land. And Miriam and Aaron grumble and they speak against Moses saying, has he not also spoken by us? But while there are many detailed accounts of the disobedience of God's people in the pages of Numbers, in particular through chapters 10 through chapters 25, by far the greatest atrocity, the greatest travesty that takes place can be found in Numbers chapter 13. When the spies journeyed into the promised land to scope it out and came back with a bad report. Numbers 13 verse 1 we see that the Lord speaks to Moses saying, send out for yourself men so that they can spy out the land of Canaan. We drop down to verse 17 and Moses actually commissions the 12 spies to go to the land of Canaan to see what the land is like and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many. And the spies do that. They go into the land, they scope it out and they come back and they bring this following report. In verses 27 and 28, we read these words. We went into the land where you sent us and it certainly does flow with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong and the cities are fortified and are very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Drop down to verse 31 through 32 we see these words, we are not able to go up against this people for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel, a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone and spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. Apparently these men had forgot the promise of the Lord in Exodus chapter 14, verse 14, when he miraculously and climactically led the people through the Red Sea. Exodus 14, 14 says this, Yahweh will fight for you while you keep silent. The Lord had promised to give the land to the people of Israel. He had promised to go before them, to be with them and to fight for them. It mattered not one iota how big the men were. It did not matter how fortified their cities were did not matter how massive their armies were. Yahweh of hosts, the God of the universe had promised to give them the land and to lead them victoriously and triumphantly into battle. And yet here in chapter 13, We see the gross unbelief of 10 of the 12 spies, which they instilled in the overall population. You can turn the page to chapter 14, and you see that it's not only the spies' rebellion, but we see the people respond, lifting up their voices and crying and and weeping, saying, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt. you continue along in the narrative. and You come to Numbers chapter 16. You find the rebellion of Korah and his followers. In verses two and three, we read these words. And they rose up before Moses together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. And they assembled together against Moses and Aaron. Korah rises up against God's appointed leadership in rebellious defiance. You can fast forward to Numbers chapter 20 and again, we see the same reality that rebellion is not just reserved for the common folk of the nation of Israel. But if you remember from Numbers chapter 20, we see the rebellion of the most humble man on the face of the earth, Moses. You remember in the beginning verses where the people are complaining about a scarcity of water supply. And God says, speak to the rock. And he would provide the water. But we know that's not what happens. Moses in angry defiance strikes the rock, not once but twice in rebellion against his God. We read in verse 12, God's stunning condemnation of this event because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. The judgment upon Moses is that he would not lead the people into the promised land of Canaan, that someone else would, who we eventually see to be Joshua, Moses' servant and successor. We continue along, Numbers chapter 21, the people become impatient. They grumble against Moses and God. Numbers 25, the nation of Israel has come to the plains of Moab. And we read that they played the harlot with the daughters of Moab. For they invited the people to the sacrifice of their gods and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor over and over again, almost in a cyclical pattern as waves crashing on the shore, as the repetitious cycle of the seasons, we see again and again, Israel's defiance and rebellion against their God, the one who had redeemed them from Egypt, grumbling and complaining about food and water, grumbling and complaining about a provision of leadership. Not trusting that the Lord was faithful to fulfill his promises, that he didn't have the power to accomplish them. A failure to treat the Lord as holy and an abandonment of the true and living God for the worship of pagan false gods. It really can't get any more grotesque and wicked than this. But Christian, take heed. Take heed that you who think that you stand do not fall. Just as it is so much easier to look out upon others and their failings with a condescending eye, so too it's easy to come to the pages of numbers to look upon the consistent disobedience and to stick up our noses and wag our fingers at the nation of Israel. But friends, consider in the nation of Israel a foreshadow of your own disobedience, of your own wickedness, of your own idolatry, of your own complaining and grumbling. I mean, consider the blessings that the nation of Israel had experienced. Even over the last year, they had been redeemed by the powerful hand of God Almighty through the plagues of Egypt. They witnessed and observed God striking down the firstborn child of the Egyptians while he passed over them on account of the blood of the slain passed over lamb. They observed God's power in dividing the two walls of the Red Sea, allowing them to walk through on dry land. They had experienced God's provision through water in the wilderness and through the provision of manna and quail. They had experienced the glory and the power of Yahweh at Sinai and the giving of the law. They had experienced the forgiveness of their sins, the pardon of their iniquities after the golden calf incident they had experienced the glorious presence of God through his dwelling in the tabernacle and through the pillar of fire and cloud. And yet, despite all of this, they still grumbled and complained. They still did not treat the Lord as holy. They still did not trust in God's faithfulness to his promises and his power to accomplish them. Christian, my question to you is, how often is that the case in your own life? I mean, consider this. If you're a Christian where you sit, you have experienced the redemption from the bondage and slavery to your own sin. You have been redeemed through the precious blood of the Lamb of God, undefiled and spotless. You have been Adopted into God's family, conferred with the special privileges of adoption. You have entered into relationship and covenant with your God through the Lord Jesus Christ, with his spirit indwelling you for that promised day of redemption. You have tasted the goodness and the kindness of the Lord. You have experienced the forgiveness of your sins You have experienced the fellowship of the saints. And despite all of that and more, despite having every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, you still dabble in that sin. You still find yourself running towards that sin. You still crumble and complain against the Lord's provision. You still fail to trust that he is true to his promises. You begin to rely on yourself and trust in yourself. Christian, how often are the words of the hymn true in your own life? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's true in my own life. I mean, how often do we fail to remember what the Lord has done? how often do we fall into this state of comatose forgetfulness? We become so myopically focused with our horse blinders on upon the difficulty before us, the situation at hand where all of the Lord's work in our life and what he has done, even on the grand theater of history, falls into the background. That's the natural disposition of fallen mankind. You don't have to teach the unbeliever. You don't have to teach the one who is plagued with the sin of Adam to grumble and complain. You don't have to teach the one who has fallen in Adam to not trust in the God who created him. Spurgeon said this, he said, we need not teach men to complain. They complain fast enough without education. You don't need to go to school to learn, to complain or grumble. And the book of Numbers paints a clear and vivid portrait of this consistent, repetitious theme, the disobedience of God's people. But that causes the question to rise. How does God respond to the disobedience of his people? We learned last time from Leviticus that God is the holy king of the universe who cannot wink at or cannot tolerate sin. He is the thrice holy God who is pure light and in him is no darkness whatsoever. We learn from Genesis that God is the righteous judge of all the earth, Genesis 18, 25, and that he must judge sin according to his holy and righteous character. God is not some proverbial monopoly man handing out get out of jail free cards over and over. You see, God must respond to sin with holy justice. And that's what brings us to the third theme that is so predominant in the book of Numbers, and that is the holy judgment of God against man's sin. Turn back with me to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11, we've already looked at this passage briefly, but I want to distinguish and highlight the Lord's response specifically in this passage. So verse one, we see that the people become like those who complain and and look at the Lord's response. It says, when the Lord heard of it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. We see in verse 10, that the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly. Consider chapter 12 and the disobedience of Miriam Aaron as they speak out against Moses and his leadership. The anger of the Lord was kindled. Miriam is stricken with leprosy. I specifically wanna highlight this in Numbers chapter 14. Numbers 14. Numbers chapter 13, the 12 spies are sent into the land of Canaan to scope out the land to bring back the report. We saw that they bring back this awful report about the terrors that awaited the nation of Israel in Canaan. And I want you to see in chapter 14 the response of God to this failure to trust in his promises, this unbelief. Verse 22 of chapter 14, we see these words, this is God's holy judgment against the disobedience of God's people. We see these words, surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these 10 times and have not listened to my voice. Shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. Verse 29, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Verse 30, surely you shall not come into the land in which I swore to settle you. Chapter 32, but as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Verse 33, until your corpses lie in the wilderness. Verse 35, in this wilderness, they shall be destroyed and there they will die. You see, in this string of judgments, God judges the first generation of the nations of Israel by causing their corpses to fall in the wilderness. A euphemistic way of speaking of judging them through death, through a death sentence. The 40 years in the wilderness was not a mammoth sized timeout, but it was God's death sentence upon a disobedient and rebellious generation. Look at number 16. Number 16, Korah and his rebellion. We see specifically in verses 31 through uh, 35 that. By God's sovereignty, he opens up the ground and it swallows him alive. Look at verse 33. So they and all that belonged to them went down to Sheol and the earth closed over them and they perished from the midst of the assembly. Let your eyes glance down at verses 41 through 50. And again, we see the nation of Israel responding to this judgment of God by complaining against Moses and Aaron. And we see that God inflicts a plague upon the people with this plague only being checked after propitiation and atonement has been made. In Numbers 21, in Numbers 21, the people rebel against God. They become impatient. They're in the wilderness. This is taking much longer than they expected. And the Lord sends deadly fiery serpents upon the people. God's holy judgment against man's sin. In Numbers 25, Numbers 25, the harlotry of the sons of Israel at Peor, we see that it leads again to the wrath and the judgment of God against man's sin. You see, as often as we find the nation of Israel disobeying and rebelling against their God, we see God's judgment against that sin falling on the heels. Unless this be something so far removed from you that you think it be an ancient account in the annals of history, in the annals of the ancient history of Israel, consider this quote from Puritan John Howe. He says this that the judgments of God are audible sermons, they have a voice. Divine judgments are loudly audible, they have a crying voice. Let that be a reminder to us that God must judge sin. The prophet Habakkuk says that his eyes are too pure to even approve of evil. He is the thrice holy God who is intrinsically in and of himself, holy and righteous. And he cannot tolerate sin. Let this be a reminder and instill in you a deep abiding hatred of sin. Let this cultivate in you an abhorrence of the remnant remaining of sin in your own life. Knowing that it displeases the Lord and ultimately that it led him to crucify his one and only son on Calvary's cross for your sins. If you want to develop a deep, hatred of sin in your life, a deep abhorrence, a deep detestation of sin in your life. Merely look to Calvary. Look to the cross. Look to the price that was paid. And beloved, always in your fight against sin, as you seek to hate sin, put sin to death, mortify sin in the flesh, do not merely look at the external manifestations of that sin. Do not just look at the outward fruit of that sin, if you will, the grumbling, complaining, but go deeper to the root, a rejection of God's rightful and kingly rule over your life. Whenever you see that repetitious grumbling and complaining on behalf of the people of God in the book of Numbers, you must go deeper to the root of the issue. It's not just their grumbling, it's not just their complaining, but it is a utter rejection of Yahweh as their God and King, insinuating that their lives would have been far better in Egypt if the Lord would not have intervened. But while the book of Numbers is filled with the righteous judgment of God against man's disobedience, we must consider another theme which is so prevalent within the pages of Numbers, and that is the grace and faithfulness of God in keeping covenant. The grace and faithfulness of God in keeping covenant. Covenant. when we were doing our survey over the book of Genesis, I mentioned how that promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, one through three is a monumental pivot point in the storyline of scripture. In that passage, God promises to make Abraham a great nation, to make him a blessing to all peoples and to provide land. And in the book of Numbers, despite Israel's rejection and disobedience against God's kingly rule in their life, we see God, faithful to fulfill the covenant. And so briefly, I want us to consider two crucial promises, promise fulfillments in Numbers that stresses that Yahweh is the gracious and faithful God who keeps his covenant. Two promise fulfillments that are seen repetitively through the book of Numbers. And the first that I wanna bring your attention to is the large censuses. The large censuses that we find in Numbers chapter one and Numbers chapter 26. In chapter one, we see the nation of Israel numbered. They're men of fighting eligibility over the age of 20. And we see that the total numbered men was 603,550 men. That's quite a significant and dramatic increase from the elderly Abraham and the barren Sarah that we met in Genesis. We come to chapter 26 in the second, the second census that is recorded and we see a very similar vast number of 601,730 totaled. And this is just the record of the men of fighting eligibility, much less women and children, which would remarkably make that number much higher. What we learn from this, from a seemingly insignificant census list is that God is faithful to fulfill his promises. He is faithful to multiply the descendants of Abraham more numerous than the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. A second promise fulfillment that I want you to observe in the pages of Numbers is the land emphasis. The land emphasis that is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Numbers. You see, while Israel's unbelief and rejection of the Lord had led to a prolonged journey, 40 years in the wilderness, God was still faithful and still multiple times explicitly says, I am bringing you into the land. Numbers 13.2 says, send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan. Listen to this, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. Numbers 15.2, this is after the rebellion of despise, this is after God's judgment saying that this generation will perish in the wilderness. We see in Numbers 15, two, when you enter the land, no question, no doubt, when you enter the land, which I am giving to you. You see, God would still be faithful to his promises despite Israel's rejection and disobedience against him. Because as we observed in Genesis 15 and the ratification of the Abrahamic covenant, it was God alone who walked through the slain animal pieces. God would fulfill the unilateral covenant that he had established. He would fulfill the promises that he had swore. Beloved, let this be an encouragement to your soul. Let this be balm to your soul. Even in the pages of Numbers we see in Numbers twenty-three, nineteen: God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? (laughs) Has he promised anything to you, Christian? Come to me and I will give you rest. Everyone who comes on me, I will by no means cast out, but will raise him up on the last day. How about I will never leave you nor forsake you? How about God will perfectly accomplish his his purposes? He will perfectly bring the work that he has begun to the day of Christ Jesus. How about God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose? Has he made promises to you, Christian? Remember the words of 2 Timothy 213. Emblazon them upon your eyelids, seal them in your heart. God is faithful. Even when we are faithless. These themes that we have studied: the wilderness wanderings, the disobedience of God's people. The holy judgment of God against man's sin and the grace and faithfulness of God in keeping covenant are so clear, are so evident as you journey with the nation of Israel through the pages of Numbers that to miss them, you would have to be reading your Bible upside down in a dark room with sunglasses on, as Steve Lawson likes to say. But these themes are not where I want to conclude our study. This evening, I want to present to you a fifth interpretation essential that you need to be aware of, and that is numbers throughout the Bible. Numbers throughout the Bible. You see, it is important and it is crucial that we consider the individual work of numbers, but we must endeavor and we must strive to discover how later writers refer back to this antecedent revelation, how they refer back to numbers throughout the pages of sacred scripture. And so as we consider that, I wanna provide with you several scriptural passages that do this very thing, that highlight certain features of the book of Numbers, that continue to bring this book to life throughout the storyline of scripture and throughout redemptive history as a whole. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list, but I just wanna provide a couple to you. So the first one, Psalm 78. Psalm 78. Psalm 78 is really a remarkable Psalm that details the faithfulness and the graciousness of God, despite the faithlessness and the unbelief of the nation of Israel. It provides a history of the nation of Israel. Just as a brief summary of a few of the verses, we see in Psalm 78, verses 40 through 42, these words from the Psalmist. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again, they tempted God and pain, the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the adversary. The psalmist looks back upon the wilderness generation and he looks back to their disobedience. He looks back to the rebellion against God in the wilderness as an object lesson to show the diametrical contrast between God's faithfulness and man's faithlessness. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians ten 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul's writing here in the context of Christian liberty. And in the beginning portion of chapter 10, he recounts all of the benefits that the nation of Israel experienced. We see that they passed through the sea, baptized into Moses, they ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, which they were drinking from the spiritual rock, which followed in the rock was Christ but then we see in verse five, nevertheless, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased for they were laid low in the wilderness. They were laid low in the wilderness. Princeton theologian, Charles Hodge, summarizes the wilderness wilderness generation of Israel this way. He says, the sons of Israel's path through the desert could be traced by the bones of those who perish through the judgments of God. And you can see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, as Paul recounts the fact that these were written as examples for us, as instruction for us, God's judgments and them being laid low in the wilderness. You see, as you read the Old Testament, these aren't just some disconnected accounts that have no bearing upon your life today. Paul says that it was written as example for you, that it was written for your instruction. Friends, as we journey throughout the pages of the Old Testament together, consider the reality that that is the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God breathed. Consider the fact that forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119.89 and every one of your statutes is righteous altogether and entirely true. Paul says that This was written. The book of Numbers, the events that are contained in Numbers were written for an instruction for us. Well, instruction for what, you might ask? Well, look at the text. Look at verses six through 13. Instructions so that you would not be idolaters. Instructions so that you would not act immorally. So that you would not try the Lord or put the Lord to the test. So that you would trust that God is faithful and that he would not let you be tempted beyond your own ability but that he will provide the means and the way of escape. Written for your instruction, believer. Charles Hodge later writes that the events contained in numbers, these were historical pictures to represent the effects of idolatry, fornication, and murmuring. And they were recorded that we might have the benefit of these dispensations so that we might be admonished to avoid the sins which brought such judgments upon them. Written for your instruction. A final scriptural passage that I want us to consider is from the gospel of John in John chapter three. Turn with me if you would to John chapter three. You know, the context of John chapter three, in the beginning, Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night And Jesus instructs him in the reality and the necessity of regeneration of the new birth. But how would the new birth be appropriated? How would the second birth become effectual so that those who believe would have eternal life? Look at verses 14 and 15. The apostle John records these words from the the mouth of our Lord. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus refers back to the account in Numbers chapter 21, where the people are stricken with fiery serpents. And God instructs Moses to erect a bronze serpent on a staff as the means appointed for healing. You see the bronze serpent in the wilderness was a foreshadow of Christ being lifted up on the cross as a means of healing that whoever would look to him, whoever looked to him with the eyes of faith would be saved and healed. There's a quote by A.W. Pink, it's a remarkable quote. We'll pass on over it if you want it. I will be glad to give it to you later. whoever should look upon him. The son of man lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness, as the means of healing. So whoever would look to him with the eyes of faith would be healed, not just of a physical infirmity, but of a spiritual malady of deadness, of depravity. Sinner, look to him. Why do you tarry? What is your hesitancy? Look to him. Consider the stricken and the bitten Israelites in the wilderness lying, writhing on the desert floor with no help, no potion or no medicine could cure their sin-stricken judgment. No doctor could come to their aid. But friend, you have a great physician of the soul, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him. Embrace the words of the hymn, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Look to Calvary, look to the substitute. You mirrored only look with the eyes of faith so that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. A few more texts that you can jot down, Philippians 2, 14 through 16, and Hebrews 3, 12 through nine. But can you just see how vital the Old Testament scriptures are, how vital they are in our overall understanding of the canonical tapestry of scriptures. I pray that as we're going through these studies, as we go and journey book by book by book, that you are growing in your love and your appreciation for the entirety of the scriptures. I pray that as you come to these books, as you study them individually for the benefit of your own soul, that you would grow in your understanding and in your appreciation of them. Friends, let us conclude with a final charge. And I wanna borrow the words of the Apostle Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, writing in the context of the events written in numbers. And he said, you who think you stand, take heed lest you fall. So as we're looking out upon the book of Numbers, as we see the disobedience of God's people, as we see God's judgment against their sin, let us not rebuke them, let us not scoff at them, but let us be careful and guard our own hearts and our own steps and grow in a love and appreciation for the Savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inspired, authoritative, and infallible, that it accomplishes all of your purposes. Pray that you would seal this word upon our hearts this evening for your glory and the good of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.